Gracious Lord, we pray that as this hymn has concluded, Lord, we are few, but Thou art near. And we pray for Thy nearness consciously to every heart here tonight. We pray that Thou wilt help us even now to get rid of all of the other intertwining thoughts that will tie us to the things of earth, will act as a labyrinth that we'll be lost in. And therefore, it's so easy to come to a meeting of this nature and virtually doze our way through it. Not let the word of an impact, because stray thoughts are reigning supreme. The anxiety of today, the plans for tomorrow, all the possibilities that may or may not lie ahead. But Lord, we pray that I will take all of those things, that I will make them captive to Thy mind, so that Thy Word will penetrate our heart tonight, will have an impact in our lives. Lord, if we didn't believe this were possible, then it would be no point in turning up at all, no point in uh, dropping off and setting down other things to come along to the house of God if we didn't think that offering prayer was a good thing, valuable exercise, and more than that, was actual communion between our heart and thine, was a petitioning of thy throne according to thy will, that thy work will go forward, and through the work thine own purposes shall be accomplished. Those people in need that we know all around us wouldn't be much point in turning up to the prayer meeting if we didn't think by our intercessions and supplications for them that they would be advantaged one iota. And so we pray that thou will come, that thou wilt solemnize our hearts, that thou wilt speak to our souls, and that thou wilt make us usable in thy service unto thy glory. May we be a channel of blessing. Oftentimes we sing about that and then go out and try to prosecute the work of God in our own strength, relying on our own ability, the power of our own mind to formulate thoughts and then our voice to express them. But Lord, we pray that we will find ourselves entirely leaning upon Thee and praying, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. May thy word have an impact upon me, and may it through me impact and be a blessing to others too. In our Savior's holy and precious name, we pray. Amen. Turning in the Word of God tonight, as we have been doing, or certainly did last week in a week prayer on three occasions, we're turning to Matthew and the chapter 6. Matthew, the chapter 6, and we're commencing to read as we did Monday, Wednesday, Friday of last week. We're reading from verse 1 again. So it's an ongoing series, and who can tell how much further it will go on? Verse 1, take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. 
Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, Pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Amen. We know the Lord Himself will add His blessing onto the reading of His Word in our hearing tonight. So we're taking the overarching theme here, as we did last week, from the corner to the closet. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory, given what we have read tonight in Matthew and the chapter 6. If we're going to think, and we haven't really considered this already, about the location of the closet, whereabouts could your closet and my closet be? Well, if I think of some biblical examples, we have Daniel, and famously there was a chamber in his house, it faced out towards Jerusalem, and Daniel, the city that lay dear to his heart, he wanted to be facing that, pray ye for the peace of Jerusalem, and he did that. And that's where his closet was in that particular chamber in his house, Daniel 6 and 10. We have David, we find him praying in Psalm 4 and 4, in Psalm 77, 6, and he's praying in the evening watches from the bed chamber. And we can argue, in some sense, that would have been a closet to him, at least on occasion. Peter met with God in the housetop in Acts 10 and verse 9. And again, I'm not recommending, given the fact that our structure of housing is different over here, to what it would be over in Israel. Flat roofs there, not up here, so uh, don't be trying to do a Peter on that one. But that's where he had his quiet time, his meeting with God. Isaac went out into the field, and we're told at even time. He went out there, and he went for the purpose of meditating, uh, Genesis 24 and the verse 63. So that would have been the open field as his closet on that particular occasion. Then with Christ, and often we find him on a mountain in Matthew 14, 23. That's one example. There were other times when he took to the mountain, set himself apart from all the rest in order to pray and supplicate the throne of God. So what we're saying here is, bringing in some of these biblical examples, a closet can pretty much be 
anywhere, but some place that you can go to and you can be alone with God and you can close the world out. So it doesn't matter so much about the position of where the closet is. That's not the vital thing. What really counts is the practice within that closet, no matter where the closet itself is located. We have our duty outlined in Matthew 6 and the verse 6, and we have thought about that over the past number of nights when we've been in this passage. It boils down to three commands that we have there in that verse, enter into the closet. So before we can do any business with God, we need to work out where my closet is going to be, enter into it, shut the door, and we underlined how important that is if we're going to shut the world out, and as the hymn writer said, be alone with God for that time within the closet. And then when we've entered the closet, shut the door, it's a time to pray because the platform, the runway has been put in, and it's time to lift off in earnest supplication and prayer unto our Father. But then you will notice, you'll notice our Savior here having given these instructions in verse 6, Thou, when thou prayest, entered into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Then our Lord goes on in verse 7 and verse 8 to give further instruction. But, ah, hold on a moment, he seems to be saying, You need to get this right to make sure that you're going to be praying effectively. Pray in that closet, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. And that's the way the chapter has begun here. You're doing alms. You're praying to God. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the heathen. Here is the way, the path that you ought to take. And our Lord outlines that very generously for us here. Now, what is our Lord doing when in verse 7 and in verse 8 he makes these statements? Use not vain repetitions. Be not therefore like unto them. He is warning us against offering prayer with the incorrect motivation. So the prayer has to be with the proper motivation if that prayer is going to be heard by Him. And the Lord right away red flags these vain repetitions. When ye pray, use not vain repetitions. So I know right from the off here when I enter into the closet, close the door, begin to pray, what our Lord does not want to hear from me, from anybody, will be a whole spit of vain repetitions. They are banned. And the Lord ties them right in with the heathen practice here. That's what they do. And they have no place in a closet that's dedicated to the worship of Jesus Christ. He also explains why they think vain repetition is a pretty good thing to do. If we multiply words, that was their concept, then we're kind of just bombarding, filling the space, saying plenty of things, and almost we're going to wear God down and He's going to answer our cry here. Our Lord is lamb fasting that, warning against that, because these people, they were substituting quantity for quality, repetition for reality, 
elongation, just stretching it out instead of earnestness, and they were coming with what was vanity, when our Lord is saying, I'm looking for vigor. That's what He tells us in Matthew 6, verse 7, and also the verse 8. Now, in this land, and certainly within the confines of our own denomination, we're well-educated with respect to many of the unbiblical practices of the Church of Rome. And in areas where it's grievously in error, and there are many, well, they're really far off the mark on this particular aspect of not using vain repetition. We're familiar with, I trust not by usage, but by hearing other people talk about it, the rosary. By far the most popular Roman Catholic ritual prayer, containing, I'm told, no less than 50 Hail Marys if you do the whole thing. And if you ever would have the misfortune, maybe down at Knox Rhine and trying to do some evangelistic work, and you see somebody there, and they're muttering their way through, and here they go, on the way through the rosary 50 times, just like punctuation marks, and I'll not repeat what they're saying after heal Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, etc., etc., etc. Let me quote Thomas Scott. And because in the Hail Marys are punctuated with our fathers, he said, when people repeat numerous paterposters without paternosters, of course it is, without meaning and devotion, as the Catholics do, their repetitions are vain. And we are in no doubt that that's how it is. I was very interested to listen to a guy today, and he was He's a lapsed Catholic, he would admit that, Bill Powers, but he did author history of the Catholic Church in North Carolina, and he said, I used to go through all of this, and I'll tell you what, I would fall asleep many times saying it at night, vain, empty repetition. But then they're not the only ones that go down this particular line. Take the Tibetan Buddhist, and characteristically, historically, they came across a rather novel method. People called it mechanical praying. What they did was, took their prayers, put them into a cylinder. That cylinder was operated by a handle, and then they turned it round, and sometimes tied it up with a ball and a chain, and every revolution of the instrument to that Tibetan Buddhist, it counted for offering the prayer that was enclosed inside the cylinder. Now, some people, they thought, well, we can really get this going very well, and we can do it very cost-effective for us in terms of our time. So what they did was, they took the drum, took the cylinder, they attached it to a place where there was running water, set it up there, and so the water cascading down onto it caused the cylinder to revolve, and so we had a machine now, and that machine was able to pray without ceasing. It kept turning while the water kept flowing. Again, in Burma, the Buddhists there, they would have punched their prayers in long pennant-like slips of paper. They'd have tied those pennants to a bamboo stick, would have waved them before the idol that they served as God, and each oscillation there would have been repeating the prayer that was printed on that pennant piece of paper. And he kept count of the revolutions by using a rosary again of 108 balls. So it's all working of a common theme here. Islam, did you know that they have a rosary as well? 
between 33 and 99 beads, depending on what they wanted at particular time. In fact, they used to pray by proxy as well, so some rich Mohammedan would have got some of the servants or employed certain people to offer prayers, and they'd have been reading prayers out of the Quran without ceasing. And of course, the prayers, the guys repeating the prayers, they weren't accruing any benefit. All the benefit was transferred to the rich Islamist account. But they do have a rosary with these 33 or 99 beads. And they go through all of that, and what they're doing is 33 times, glory be to God, 33 times, praise be to God, 33 times. Here's one I will say, because you have heard it many, many times in terrible context, Aluhu Akbar, God is the greatest. And so they go right through 99 times on this particular rosary that they too are using. Now, every single one of these practices, it's no issue for us to see that they're falling right in to what our Lord is censuring in Matthew 6, verse 7, verse 8. But no wonder, no wonder, this is the first red flag He puts up. Who would have known these false religions were going to do this? Well, God would know all the time. And that's why he puts in right away, but when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking, be not ye therefore like unto them. The biting question, of course, is, am I, are you any better than they? Do our prayers go down the runways of proper supplication, clear the hedges, lift off, and make their way on their journey to heaven and touch the throne of God? Are they free from the vain repetitions, all the fillers that so dog prayer, that burden supplication, that tie it as if it's a tent peg holding it to the ground that it can't get lift off and can't reach the ear of God. What is the answer to that challenge? Sometimes I think we have to lift up our hands in the air, and I plead guilty to it as well. There are times when we slump into the closet, and we're really too tired because we've exhausted ourselves on all the other businesses of the day. And at that moment when we're praying, we're too tired to concentrate on the business of prayer. And our ardor is cooled and our temperature of devotion has dropped. And we end up switching on to automatic pilot and vainly repeating a few lines that really, well, they sound mighty like prayer to any other listener, but our hearts are so far away from the warmth of true religion and communion with God. Are they any better in those circumstances than vain repetition? Prayer, it should not be vain, but vigorous. Came across a quote today by an old preacher from Scotland up in Perthshire, Alexander Cumming. Dunbarney Parish, he ministered in many, many years ago, he said, it is the invariable constitution of the kingdom of heaven that blessings of great magnitude are not imparted except prayers of the deepest urgency. And I think that does bear repetition. It is the invariable 
constitution of the kingdom of heaven, that blessings of great magnitude are not imparted except to prayers of the deepest urgency. He would only give a couple of examples, and the examples were, you remember the time when the disciples were confronted with the boy who had the demon, and they tried to cast him out, and they couldn't, and in frustration, they said to the Lord, we tried, but we couldn't cast him out, and the Lord said, this kind goeth not forth, but by prayer and fasting, and what our Lord was saying there was, you need to give yourselves to fervency in your supplications. Two disciples are going in the road to Emmaus. Our Savior joins them and folds to them through the Word, the luster of His person, all that the Messiah was going to do, that He would suffer, that He would die, that He would rise again, that He would be set for the fall and rising again of many people in Israel. But they didn't discover that's our risen Redeemer until their ardor for communion was put to the test. And he makes as though he's going to go further, and then they constrain him, abide with us. And when they urged him, take shelter with us, stay with us the night, he seemed to repay their kindness. And so we find that he made himself known to them in the breaking of bread. And that's in harmony with the way our Lord acts in every age. It's to those who by their unconquerable ardor, by their inflexible perseverance, they compel him to turn aside. Then he gives them the sweetest glimpses of his reconciled countenance. Old language, I know, complicated quotation, I realize, but I trust you're getting the message and that I'm getting the message from it as well. What is our Lord looking for? Basically, prayer from a burning heart. Real prayer should be like sparks jumping white hot off the anvil of our devotion to Christ. Herbert Lochter said, prayer, ardent prayer, opens heaven. Let's dine a stream of glory on the consecrated art of man in audience with deity. And that's my target when I get into the closet, close the door, have communion with God. I want God to let loose a stream of glory on that consecrated time. I need His presence every passing hour. So, there's no time for prattling about in the closet for rattling through vain repetitions. Our Lord right away flags that up. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions. That would be prayer without proper motivation. But then secondly, prayer without intermission is what is being spoken of here as well. Prayer without intermission, and we'll explain where we are with that. Question, is all repetition banned? We'll read our text again in verse 7 and 8. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they should be heard for their much speaking. Be ye not therefore like unto them. Now, we can't go away from that, can we, with the thought that every single form of repetition is being outlawed. Otherwise, what are we going to do? 
Somebody prays in the prayer meeting. They maybe pray the same line twice. Ah, there's vain repetition going on there. Stroke off that guy or that woman's prayer because God isn't going to hear it. And we'll be sitting with a wee notebook. Uh, tick, yeah, that's fine. No vain repetition. Oh, there's more vain repetition. No, no, we're not the watchdog. They're not praying to us. We're praying to the ear of God. But what is happening here is not all repetition is banned. It's vain repetitions. Not repetition, but vain repetition. And between the two is a world of difference. Andrew Fuller has wisely pointed out, it is not our Lord's design to condemn all repetitions. He himself on some occasion continued for a whole night and in Gethsemane, and we have the evidence of that in the Word, it's repeated, he three times repeated the same words. And are we going to say, Lord, that's being repetition? Of course it's not. It is repetition, but it's repetition that is endorsed by heaven, that was heard by heaven and answered by heaven. So all repetition is not void here, it's vain repetition. Thomas Scott, let's quote him again, as well as Fuller, there are vain repetitions, Fuller said, which he censures, and the hope of being heard for much speaking. But, Scott says, it is evident that this rule is not transgressed by using repetitions from the fullness of the heart, when earnestly craving some special mercy. The Lord wants us to come and come, and come again. Praying the same thing? Yes, because He's burdening our heart for that thing. Let's give biblical examples rather than just quotes out of history. 1 Kings 18, 41 to 46, you have Elijah's servant go again seven times, and Elijah's down at the mountain, and he's praying, he's praying the same prayer. Lord, send rain that this people may know that thou art God in Israel. goes up and up and up again, and Elijah's praying the same petition down that mountain every single time, seven times over. In Daniel 9, verse 2 and verse 3, we have prayer and built upon prayer, supplication, built upon supplication, and augmented there is fastings coming in as well. We have, of course, in Luke 11, the verse 9 and 10, our Lord saying, here's how you're praying. You ask, add to your asking, lift it up a gear, you seek, and then take it up another gear, and you knock. And there is repetition, of course, in there. And he tells us in Luke 18, the verse 1, men ought always to pray and not to faint. What do we read about the early church? In the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 4, we will give ourselves, this is their vow, their pledge, we will give ourselves continually to prayer. And we have in Acts 12 and 5, they're gathered together in a house. And what are we told? Prayer was made without ceasing. Of the church unto God for him. Peter was in prison. They were praying for his release. Ephesians 6 and 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication and with all perseverance. Perseverance and prayer is never outlined in the Bible. Coming back and back and back and praying that same burden back to God is encouraged positively, repeatedly encouraged and exhorted in the book. 
We have another feature here, prayer without we'll come to the third and the final point tonight. Prayer without the proper motivation, without intermission, prayer by imitation. Hold on a minute. Prayer by imitation, is that not the very thing Jesus Christ is outlawing here? He's telling us not to be imitators. But when ye pray, verse 7, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think the day shall be heard, for they're much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. Our Lord is saying, don't be imitators. Yes, of course He is. Don't be imitating the heathen. Don't be imitating the hypocrites. But in warning us against imitating them, surely at the very least by intimation. What he's doing is he is directing us to the one that we should and must imitate in prayer, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If I find myself in prayer imitating in him, I'm on good solid ground. There is no doubt about that. Lord, teach me to pray as Jesus prayed. What a prayer that would be. And when it's offered, what a prayer that would be. He's our example in every realm, no matter how we look at that, and that includes prayer. So when I look at Luke chapter 11, verse 2 to 4, we find there that he is teaching his disciples how to pray. He does the same in Matthew 6, verse 9 to 15. And what we have here is our Lord is saying to the disciples, don't be imitating the hypocrites. Don't be imitating those heathen people around you. Learn of me. Here's the pattern to follow. So let's open our eyes and watch our Lord in the place of prayer, because there's no better place to learn, no better person from whom to learn. And this prayer that we have in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 15, is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer, and yet, as you will well know, we are never told that our Lord prayed this prayer on any occasion Himself. But in John chapter 17, we do have a prayer that he did pray. And we're absolutely sure that he prayed it. It directly came from his lip and from his heart. We call it our Lord Jesus Christ's great high priestly prayer. And what a prayer that is in John chapter 17. I know the ecumenists all over the place have had a field day with this, and they take a chunk out and that they all may be one, and then they take it and drive it into their own garage, and they park it, and they say, that's what that's all about. But of course, properly understood, that is not what it is all about. When you study the prayer of Christ in John 17, you'll see order in it. It moves in three distinct circles. First circle is, verse 1 to 8, he's praying for himself. Then we have the second circle, 9 to 19 of John 17. He's praying for his own people, the church. And then he goes in another circle, and it's widening out. In verse 20 to 26, he's praying for the world in general. Is that a good pattern to follow? Of course it is. Praying for himself, for his own, his people fellow believers, as when we are coming to prayer, that's who we're praying for, the church, praying then for the world in general, the heathen out there, and how many there are. So, our Lord is setting an order here. 
first for yourself, then for the church that He is building, then for the world that we are trying by His grace and help to evangelize. How did Jesus pray, though? Here's the order. How did He pray? What was His target? What was His objective in prayer? Well, He tells us that very clearly in John chapter 17. It's to bring glory to God. That was His principal aim. In fact, that was the all-encompassing, catch-all principle by which He prayed and lived, and also died to bring glory to God. You'll find in verse 1 through to the verse 8 of John chapter 17, He tells the Father four things about Himself. And all four statements start exactly the same. I'm sure you can see that if you've turned to John chapter 17. There are four I haves. Four I haves that he mentions. Verse 4, I have glorified thee in the earth. Verse 4 again, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Verse 8, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou did send me. I have glorified thee on the earth. And in closing, let's look at these four I haves of our Lord, for He's teaching us how to pray, objectives in prayer, what we should be looking to do as well. I have glorified thee on the earth. What a statement that is to make. Can you make it? Can I make it? Christ could certainly do so because all of His words and His ways and His works, in all of that, He had sought single target every time, how can I bring glory to God? And it's my prayer that all of us, when we come to the close of our service on earth, we'll be able to say what our Lord said, I have glorified Thee on the earth. In our Westminster Shorter Catechism, we have that opening question, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. The minister was going round, as they did in the old Scottish homes, and they were catechizing the children within the families. And he came to a home one day to catechize a boy, and he asked the boy, what is man's chief end? And the boy replied, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. He knew his catechism, repeated it there. Quite right, said the minister. And then timidly, the boy said to the minister, can I ask you a question? Can you tell me what God's chief end is? We know what man's chief end is. What is God's chief end? Now, no minister likes a question like that, that you haven't thought about, you haven't prepared for, bang, it's there in front of you, there's an audience, and you're expected to have an answer right there. And he thought a moment, and then he said, I'm afraid I can't give you an answer for that. And the boy thought he had an answer, and he said back, God's chief end is to glorify man and enjoy him forever. Doesn't sound right, but the lad had a point. God is under no obligation to do anything because he is God. He doesn't need man. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man, that thou visitest him? But... In His mercy, in His mercy, He has chosen 
to take the vilest of sinners, to wash them white in the blood of the Lamb, to bring them to Calvary, to infuse them with His grace and His mercy and His power, and ultimately, Romans chapter 8, to keep working on them until He glorifies them, justified them right through to glorified them. The lad had a point. But our chief end is to magnify him. The second in John 17 and 4, the second I have, our Lord is saying, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Our Lord, of course, when he said that, had the cross in focus. The cross, the shadow of the cross was leaning right over him by the time he prayed this in John chapter 17. Very soon, very, very soon, he would be on that cross. Others around him couldn't see it. The Redeemer dying, being taken from us, all of that was so easy and blurred they couldn't understand that. But our Lord had the cross in sharp focus when He said, I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. And of course, as He dies, He cries, it is finished. I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. Will that be our testimony? Are we striving to work for Him to persevere in the work until it's complete? Some people start well, and then they get way late, and they don't finish. Like Luke 14, the verse 30, the man who began to build wasn't able to finish. On Calton Hill, just outside the main part of the city of Edinburgh, you probably have noticed pillars in a semicircular format. Six or seven of them, massive columns standing up, reaching above the skyline. Just after the French Revolution, it was thought by the city of Edinburgh that you know, what we're going to do here is we're going to erect a large building, Corinthian or Athenian in structure, and we're going to have it on that hill. And they sent out appeals, they tried to gather money, some money came in, thousands of pounds, but the subscription stopped. And Edinburgh was only able to build six or seven columns. Today, they still stand. They're known as pride and poverty. Edinburgh began to build, wasn't able to finish. One preacher said, One thing that keeps me faithful to my task is this. When the day breaks and the shadows flee away and I find myself in the presence of the Lord, He will show me the original plan He had for my life, the plan for my career and my character, and I pray that when I stand before Him, my life and His divine pattern will fully correspond. I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. That's also true in prayer. How do we pray? We have to pray according to God's will. How do we find the will of God? We seek it out. We get to know it. We do it. And when we're praying from that basis, I am now doing the will of God, having sought it out. We will be praying according to His will. Prayer by imitation. Objective number three, verse six of John 17, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world, thine they were, thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy 
word. What our Lord did was he took of the Godhead and he made it clear, brought it close onto men. And because they could see it and knew this is real and this is powerful, they followed it. Tell me, is it easier or is it more difficult for sinners around us to follow Christ after they have met us? Is it easier or is it more difficult for men around us to see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ after they have met with us? That's our challenge. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Objective number four, the final one, verse 8. John 17, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou hast sent me. He was dwelling in the presence of the Father, took the word from heaven, and proclaimed it unto men. That's what we're tasked with doing. We're not having to reinvent the wheel. We're not having to dream up some scheme to attract the masses. We are here to Preach God's Word. Take what He has said. Give it to men. Whether they will hear, whether they will forbear. They're in need. What do they need? They need God's Word, whether they think it or not. That's what they need. And God has risen to meet that need. And He's using me and He's using me. He's using you. You're the finger of God today. So we have these four halves in this first part of the prayer in John 17, and that really opens up the subject of prayer in the closet. Here's what we need to pray. I have glorified thee in the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me. I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, Lord, as I spend time in the closet. Help me to pray along these lines that I'll be enabled to do all of this. And then, the prayer I'm offering, because it's imitating Christ, walking in the steps of our Savior, we will then be praying with power. But when ye pray, use not the in repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. Putting up on screen prayer that we would like to offer tonight for the missions planned in Sandy Row, September the 27th through to the 29th. Because of circumstances, we are moving the martyrs one to October the 3rd through to the 5th. Do keep those dates in mind. The people out there will be informed soon, and, well, there will be quite, quite a bit of door-knocking and meeting with people and encouraging them to come, and may they come for those mission times. Emily Ards is in hospital now. I do remember her and a whole list of people there as well. We've been asked also to remember Betty Houston's cousin's wife, and uh, do please remember Betty's cousin's wife needs her prayers. Those that have been bereaved recently, the Halls, Carters, and the Pattons, two funerals today, the Carter and the Patton funeral. I pray for the families concerned, please. We'll ask Joel 
if he'll lead us to the throne of grace in prayer tonight, please. Thank you.